Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956 episode 4. Last time we examined in significant, heavy detail the circumstances of Nikita Khrushchev's secret speech, delivered before a closed gathering of communist delegates in Moscow on the evening of the 24th to 25th of February. Khrushchev felt compelled to give this speech to move the Soviet Union forward and intercept the difficult questions which were to come from those individuals who were attempting to return to normal life that being Prisoners of the Gulag. In this episode and in the next one, we'll give you guys a great sweep of the reactions both by party officials on the ground to his speech after word of it gradually reaches the corners of the Soviet Union. It's one of those episodes I can't do justice to in a description, so if you're ready, we'll just get into it. Thanks for listening and supporting the show as I take you to spring 1956. Stalin made you an academic and now you say it was a pack of lies? Who falsified this history? You falsified it. How can you respond to our questions, I don't know, I need to think, when we have to go to the classroom tomorrow? What will we tell the children? It had been a long series of days for Anna Pankratova, a party historian and enthusiastic official charged with explaining the implications of Khrushchev's speech on the cult of personality. Khrushchev's speech, once it was disseminated, had hit the different Soviet professions like a bomb. Among the most fearful and angry were the teachers, who needed to know urgently what they were supposed to say to the children that they taught, after so many years of telling them how benevolent, wise and masterful Stalin had always been. What was now acceptable party doctrine when one referred to Stalin? Was it possible to hold anything back at all? Should anything be held back? How far did this thaw go? Was it now permissible to talk openly? Was it time to examine other aspects of Soviet life and question these as well? It was Anna Pankratova's misfortune as a loyal party bureaucrat to have to answer such questions to the best of her ability. A deeply unnerving prospect since no state hymn sheet, so to speak, had yet been given since Khrushchev's speech had rocked the USSR a month before. From the middle of March, Pankratova was giving lectures and answering crowds in Leningrad in the best way that she could. Less than a month after Khrushchev's speech, 
and still no instructions have been given from Moscow about how to represent it or what it really entailed. All that Pankratova and her peers knew was that the speech had been given before a closed grouping of the Presidium and several foreign delegates, and that no instructions had been given since. The vague manner in which the speech was to be guarded, with instructions for it to be read aloud rather than handed out to every civilian, caused a myriad of problems. If the Soviet hierarchy, if Khrushchev indeed, wanted the speech to be seen and heard, why did they make it so hard to find, and why did they remain silent on the key questions which exploded from its message? If Pankratova knew why her superiors remained silent, she did not comment on it. She had far more pressing concerns, like presenting another lecture on the decisions of the 20th Party Congress and the tasks of historical science to a hall in Leningrad populated by over 3,000 historians, propagandists, and teachers on the 20th of March 1956. It was now coming up on a month since Khrushchev had given the speech, but there was still no word on what it had all meant. Moreover, the Soviet collective leadership had placed themselves far above the issue of answering the people's questions, which meant that these people had many urgent questions to ask, and Pankratova was the only one who seemed willing to answer. The atmosphere in this Leningrad talk was something akin to a nervous, agitated staging area, when the soldiers prepare to move out on an offensive, or when the curtain is just about to rise to open a well-rehearsed play. Everyone in the hall on the 20th of March existed in the profoundly difficult limbo between having to understand and compartmentalise the speech, and then having to place it in acceptable words which could be communicated to others, be they students, children, or readers of a newspaper. It is difficult for us to even imagine what this experience must have been like, and the extent to which her audience had been gripped by a paralysing anxiety really must have been something. Students were present as well, though, and they would be eager to ask questions of their own. Many had written their thesis on Stalin's role in furthering the socialist Marxist cause, Would their work now be discounted and their degrees revoked? Indeed, the tension revolved more around the impact of the speech on their professional lives rather than what one may be allowed to say to their families over the dinner table. It was while exposed in public, of course, that citizens were in most danger of saying or doing the wrong thing and then paying the price. The deep concerns of those present are explained by the domination of the party in all aspects of Soviet life boasting a hulking bureaucratic apparatus, any civil servants or propagandists needed to be in a position where they could explain key aspects of the speech. Having spoken for the regime in the past, they now had to be able to speak for it and explain its latest course to the common rabble. But this was not just a new course, it was an admission of culpability. Khrushchev had been willing to criticise not merely the cult of personality propagated by Stalin, but also the party's role in failing to challenge it. Though, of course, this willingness went only so far. For those who had always been charged with presenting the party as infallible in the past, though, now this wrench had been thrown directly at the heart of what the party was supposed to mean to the lives and to the progress of ordinary people. That the party could and had been wrong to follow Stalin to the letter in the past was a troubling admission to come to terms with. Yet, for most of those attending, another concern was how the speech had been communicated to them. The manner of spreading the speech throughout the country meant that it had only been heard once in full by those very people who needed to know and remember it. 
physical copies of the speech were given only to high-level regional party bureaucrats, not to lowly teachers. How could they speak for the party when they could only remember the speech's most incendiary contents, and even then not all that well? The other aspects of the speech were of course dominated by what was remembered, and remembered above all else was the criticism of Joseph Stalin, from his activities during the Russian Civil War to his leadership during World War II, with an additional focus on the purges and the issue of Stalin's paranoia. Stalin's cult of personality was a central theme, as the title of the speech indicated, and Khrushchev's task had been to separate this cult from the roots of the Soviet Union, so that by discrediting it, the actual Soviet state was not delegitimized in the process. We talked about this in the last episode at length, but we went into it a good bit because it is such an important point. This exercise was easier said than done for Khrushchev, who at least didn't have to answer any questions to the people, but it was nigh on impossible for the likes of Pankratova, who faced a series of equally unflattering options to go with. Either Pankratova and her ilk knew about the cult and failed to protest, or they were ignorant, or there was no cult of personality at all. Abrupt changes in how the party presented its history or how it presented specific figures also disarmed those that had heard the speech. For example, where once he had been vilified and eliminated, quite literally from the party's history, now Leon Trotsky was merely an ideological opponent rather than an enemy. Other changes to the official history followed, but nowhere could any clarification be found. Khrushchev hadn't apparently bothered to make it known whether Trotsky could be looked upon in any favourable way, or whether he was still an enemy after all. All the while though, because of her willingness to answer questions at this Leningrad gathering, Pankratova became the focus for many people's anger. How many of you academics and scholars are there? 100? 1000? And what were you doing, tell us, while Stalin, one man, perverted science and history? In theory you are against exaggerating the role of the individual, but in practice for 30 years, having understood his mistakes, you are all powerless against one individual. This was one of many demands shouted out to Pankratova, in addition to the equally unsettling challenge which opened this episode, and many more we don't have time to record. All of the challenges put forward by the Soviet citizens demonstrate an urgent desire to know what they were allowed or not allowed to say or to do, but they also wanted to find someone to blame for what had preceded this change in party tune. Worrying as well, and something which Khrushchev was himself anxious to prevent, Discussions on what the party had done wrong could and did develop into discussions about how the party could properly reform itself. Maintaining its facade of the people's democracy, the citizens who attended Pankratova's lecture loudly denounced that falsehood and demanded to know what would be done in the future to prevent another Stalin from taking power in such a way. Questions about more transparency, a more democratic process to elect those members of the Presidium, for example, or for reforms which would actually hold leaders of the state to task, these all evoked in Pankratova a nervousness which she hadn't felt before, even while she had been arrested by the secret police, wouldn't you just know it, and deported further east under Stalin's rule. There would not have been any fear in the first place, of course, had the prevailing dominance of the party and its insidious apparatus not made friends, family or colleagues disappear in the past. Did Khrushchev's speech, for example, mean that one would no longer be arrested for speaking publicly on such matters? What did it mean, Pankratova? 
Anna Pankratova did not know, and by the evening of the 20th of March, she was both utterly exhausted and close to tears. It was all she could do to flop into the bed of her dingy hotel room that night and prepare herself mentally and physically for yet another day of the same. Her lectures continued to be in high demand, of course, and there seemed nobody else in Leningrad up to the task of performing them. Yet, as difficult as Pankratova's task was, Leningrad was but one microcosm in the wider sea of turmoil which was enveloping the Soviet Union. One month after Khrushchev's speech, everyone from the most distant peasant to the most central party official had heard or read the speech. It was transported in its physical state as a 38-page document, with a communist red-letter front and the words Secret, Destroy or Return After Three Months emblazoned on the front. It was a starkly plain presentation considering its monumental contents. Had one been unaware of the rumours, they may well have let it sit in their desk as yet another bland policy paper for them to read in their own time or perhaps not read and just say they did later on. Of course, the rumours and whispers were far too powerful to be ignored. Once it was said that Stalin had been denounced by Khrushchev or even that the late First Secretary had not received the kind of reverence which he had always been treated to before, millions rushed to hear the speech's contents. Roy Medvedev, a principal in a Leningrad school, was not permitted to attend Anna Pankratova's lectures. Instead, he was tasked with gathering his peers together in the first week of March 1956, and he later remembered the experience. I was told to assemble all the teachers at 4pm in the club of the nearby Brickworks on the following day, Medvedev recalled. He noted that the audience paid close attention and listened in silence, almost in horror, until at the speech's end. For several moments there was not a sound in the room and then we all silently left. Silence, horror and confusion, all of these were understandable reactions to the apparently enormous shift en route in Soviet policy, yet some remained angered at the decision to communicate the speech at all. It's very hard for me right now, admitted a lieutenant colonel tasked with teaching party history to new cadets. Yesterday I had said one thing about Stalin, and today I'm supposed to say something completely different. The students will just say I'm a parrot with no views of my own, he noted, before adding. They should have just fixed the mistakes that had been allowed and not advertised them. The question of why Khrushchev chose not to remain silent is a puzzle in itself. As the historian Albert Parry asked, quite reasonably considering the past record of the Soviet version of history, why could they not continue their collective reign by just talking about the man who gave them their power by letting the bad memory of him gradually recede and fade away? Did Khrushchev, with or without the consent of his co-leaders, have to do it? The question is one that we investigated in the previous episode, where the first secretary pushed for going all, if not most, of the way towards the condemnation of Stalinism, out of the belief that in time the truth would get out. In addition, it is also worth considering a few other reasons, as Albert Parry does. It is also worth bearing in mind in the last analysis that Khrushchev, involved as he had been with some of the worst excesses of the regime, could well have been genuinely surprised to learn of the extent of the Stalinist terrors in the past, and that he wished to make amends by condemning what had passed before as official policy. Until it was condemned, Khrushchev may have believed that Moscow would never move on, and that 
progress would never really be met. It does not seem to have occurred to him that the recipients of his message would react as they did. While across the Soviet Union the reaction over March 1956 remained nervous and inquisitive, but largely non-violent, in Stalin's home of Georgia there was found the one notable exception. As the wonderfully named historian Timothy Bloveld noted, the Georgian reaction to the secret speech was not based merely on the reverence that Stalin's native Georgia held for him, but also on the distaste which many in the Caucasian satellite state held for being told by Moscow bureaucrats how to think for so long. While Bloveld sounds like something of a Bond villain, his article on the revolts make for a highly informative read, and on this subject he writes, This, the Georgian reaction, was not necessarily because people there had a greater love for Stalin than Soviet citizens elsewhere in the country. Since Stalin himself was a Georgian, the fact of him being discredited at the hands of central politicians in Moscow seemed to have caused an elemental sense of national indignation among many Georgians. For many more, especially among young elites, it is possible that this sense of indignation was more than just elemental. The statutes of Stalin reflected directly on the status of Georgians and the Georgian Republic. As George's favourite son, in many areas still to this day by the way, it was taken as a point of honour that the contribution which he and thus his small homeland had made be recognised and appreciated. But by presenting a different picture of Stalin, Moscow essentially threw Stalin's contribution back in the faces of Georgian communists, and this was something which few there could abide by. They took to the streets as early as the evening of the 4th of March, this was the day before the third anniversary of Stalin's death, and for over a week, the major cities and towns of Georgia were abuzz with the violent reaction to Khrushchev's words. Not until Soviet tanks were called in was this reaction properly put down, and Moscow may well have believed that the worst was over. However, while the Georgian revolts broke out for very different reasons to those that later erupted in Poland and Hungary, all had been inspired by the secret speech. If they thought that the most difficult fallout from the speech had been dealt with, then Khrushchev and his circle had seen nothing yet. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Almost as bad as the unanticipated impact of the speech and its dangerous implications was the immensely amateurish way it was distributed. Khrushchev received applause from those present when he insisted that We cannot let this matter get out of the party, especially not to the press, and he warned against giving ammunition to the enemy, and added that we should not wash our dirty linen before their eyes. Yet it almost seemed as though Khrushchev couldn't decide whether to make the speech publicly available or not. Even before they had left Moscow, a group of East European leaders were given access to the speech, and edited transcripts were also given to other foreign party leaders. The spreading of information about the speech inevitably caused rumours to leak out first to the common people and then abroad. It was one of these transcripts of the speech that ended up in the CIA's hands. By the 17th of March, a number of British newspapers were reporting on rumours of a break with Stalin by the party, while in June, both the New York Times and London's Observer published a full transcript of the speech for all their readership to view. Since it is estimated that as many as 35 million people heard the speech in some form in the Soviet Union during the month of March 1956, it is hardly surprising that its contents leaked out to the Western powers. If the native reactions to the speech was one of shock, anxiety and confusion, then the initial Western response was to quash the speech's contents altogether and question the authenticity of its source. As one academic journal noted in July 1956, The United States government does not vouch for its authenticity. Nevertheless, it has been received elsewhere as plausible. It is in keeping with the tenor of statements made by responsible officials of non-Soviet communist parties and communist newspapers in the West have made no attempt to denounce it as a forgery. On the contrary, they have treated it as genuine. Herein lay the problem for Khrushchev. After making his stand, he couldn't then deny the speech when foreign media outlets asked whether he had been genuine. As was becoming clear by the reaction in Georgia and by the extent to which he had been barred by questions since, Khrushchev also couldn't remain silent on the speech for much longer. Khrushchev's silence is understandable when we consider the grave questions and challenges which his speech had evoked. Among the commonality of the Soviet Union, there was plainly a hunger for answers, and we'll see in later episodes, Khrushchev's very inability or sheer unwillingness to characterise and clarify what the speech meant, in other words, where Soviet rule would or could go from here, hindered the very concept of Soviet authority. If it could be said that the cult of personality under Stalin was illegitimate, or that it had been a deviation from true Marxist-Leninist doctrine, then what did this mean for everything accomplished or established under Stalin? Were the years of industrialization, the arrival of the Soviet Union on the world stage, or the victory in the Great Patriotic War now illegitimate too? One historian noted in summer 1956 that Khrushchev's silence spoke volumes when one considered the First Secretary's own record in service to Stalin's regime. Writing, 
To attribute to Stalin alone the responsibility for these and innumerable other acts is to carry the cult of the individual far indeed. Mr. Khrushchev deplored the tendency to elevate one person, transform him into a superhuman, possessing supernatural characteristics akin to those of a god. Yet, in his own fashion, this is precisely what Khrushchev himself has done. Just as the party historian Anna Pankratova had struggled with that critical question of how to remove the Stalin-sized tumour without killing the Soviet host, so too did Khrushchev anxiously proceed according to the primary concern that, by delegitimizing Stalin, the Soviet Union would delegitimize itself. For three and a half years, in the words of the historian Bertram Wolf, the heirs wrestled with the task of reducing Stalin's size, yet keeping his cruel gains in agriculture, industry, state power and foreign conquest. Even the way in which Stalin had been treated immediately after his death had been erratic, and indicative that his heirs didn't quite know what to do with the late man of Steele's legacy. Eighteen days after his death, for example, his name disappeared altogether from Pravda, but then it reappeared again. First it was written smaller, then it appeared in larger type, and then it shrank again. This, all in the context of Stalin's countless victims being amnestied, of the wooing of Tito and of the looming thaw which seemed to be approaching. Yet the problem remained unsolved, and as Wolf continued, the spirit would not stay in the tomb. When the Congress opened, it unexpectedly turned out that the important delegate was Stalin's ghost. Being able to blame Stalin for what had been done wrong with the party in the past was both a blessing and a curse. Khrushchev knew that an emphasis upon the Stalinist terror to a certain point would raise other uncomfortable questions and undermine the image of the party's inner revolutionary will. As one historian acidly put it, No revolutionary of Tsarist days would have accepted as a reason for inactivity the plea that the tyrant treated all others in such a way that they could only listen and praise him, or that a situation was created where one could not express one's own will. It is tantamount to an admission that the revolutionary terror had succeeded, where Tsarist persecution had failed, in destroying the spirit and traditions of the party, which elevates revolution against oppressors to the highest level of social obligation. Other historians, for the record, give differing opinions on Khrushchev's actual aims. They point out that he sought to gain diplomatic and domestic leverage by denouncing Stalin and creating a new enemy camp among his own rivals, kind of like what Stalin did with his fascists and Titoists. In terms of diplomacy, the act of moving away from Stalin's legacy and policies was done, in the opinion of the historian Harrison Salisbury, to appease the West and to instigate a new period of détente. Salisbury wrote that these diplomatic aims could be divided into three phases, and followed that the objective of the first phase was to create preconditions which would make possible and practical the opening of a diplomatic field of manoeuvre which would have as its objective the creation of the détente. As for the second phase, Salisbury said its objective was and is the actual achievement of a working détente between the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc. Finally, in the case of the third phase, Salisbury noted that The objective of the third phase was and is the evolution of a positive diplomacy designed to shift the world balance of forces in the direction of greater Eastern Bloc strength 
through the accumulation of diplomatic allies and the enlargement of the neutral bloc. Khrushchev was not bound by moral considerations then. In the opinion of Salisbury here, he was denouncing Stalin to forge a new way in diplomacy with the Americans. Only by publicly denouncing what Stalin had done, Khrushchev believed, would Washington buy into a new and improved relationship with Moscow, one with mutual benefit. There is evidence to support the idea that Khrushchev wished to significantly reduce the tensions between Moscow and Washington. Above all, his determination to reduce the size of the Soviet army proves this. This reduction in the Soviet armed forces would rub many colleagues and many bureaucrats in the massive military-industrial complex that the Soviet Union was the wrong way for obvious reasons. Those of us that know what's coming in Khrushchev's tenure in office may well see a degree in irony in his intentions to reduce conflict with the West, considering Khrushchev's own belief in the deterring power of nuclear weaponry and the Cuban Missile Crisis which followed. Yet, at the same time, it's difficult to get around the conclusion that Khrushchev looked at what Soviet foreign policy had been under Stalin and found himself disagreeing with many aspects of it. Needless conflict with Western Europe, with the West or with Yugoslavia was a distraction from what could be achieved if only the old chains were removed and new ideas were allowed to overcome the obsolete orthodoxy. Stalin's ghost may well have been haunting those at the 20th Party Congress then, but it was, as a ghost, fresh out of new ideas, and the old ones hadn't worked for some time. West Germany had joined NATO in 1954, anchoring that group of states together and uniting the Franco-German governments together for the first time in such a stark manner. But Khrushchev was far from a pacifist. He wished simply to undermine the Anglo-American-European alliance through different, more intelligent means, and he believed that a level of detente would be possible in the meantime. In line with this approach, the veteran Soviet diplomat Andrei Alexandrov-Agentov commented that Khrushchev's foreign policy approach consisted of three main elements to prop up to the maximum and to tie to the Soviet Union the people's democracies of Eastern and Central Europe, to create, where possible, a neutral buffer between the two opposing military blocs, and to gradually establish economic and more or less normal forms of peaceful cooperation with the NATO countries. This analysis here from Andrei Alexandrov-Agentov gels well with what Harrison Salisbury said earlier on about Khrushchev wanting to create a neutral third bloc on the continent. Yet, it is also worth underlining here the importance which Alexandrov-Agentov identified in Khrushchev for East-Central Europe, considering the aftershocks of the secret speech and the extent to which the Soviet Union would have to scramble after the event to preserve its dominion in Poland and especially Hungary, this is hardly a surprising revelation, but it does add further weight to the notion that Khrushchev on no level intended for his speech to be interpreted by those east-central states as an opportunity to grasp reform or greater independence by the horns, as several of them did. The speech was for him and for his benefit. This is especially apparent when we consider its domestic potential. While on one level the hesitation of his peers to move against Stalin's ghost was understandable, now the denunciation of Stalin could be seen as a kind of litmus test for one's loyalty to Khrushchev. This would become especially important if we see the secret speech in light of Khrushchev's goal to monopolise his hold over the Soviet leadership. 
As Alexandrov Agentov remarked, it was Khrushchev, Anastash Mikoyan, Molotov and Malenkov who had taken the initiative after Stalin's death in the area of foreign policy, and who were the initiators of revision of Stalinist traditions of foreign policy and creation of an approach to new world problems that was innovative to a certain degree. Mikoyan wasn't much of an issue since he never harboured serious ambitions for the Soviet leadership, but if the others could be removed or undermined, then not only would Khrushchev be free to craft and mould a logical conclusion to the post-Stalinist foreign policy, he would also be well-placed to take full credit for its successes. The fortunes of Soviet foreign policy under Khrushchev would not in fact produce the results that the first secretary was looking for, but in 1956 this of course could not be known. Back to our original point then, the act of forcing out these rivals to the post-Stalinist credits could be made that much easier by making Stalinism a badge of dishonour akin to Titoism or Fascism. As the historian William Henry Chamberlain noted, It has apparently seemed expedient to stigmatise as Stalinists, the anti-party group of Khrushchev's open and secret opponents in the Communist Party, to associate Malenkov, Molotov and other individuals who have opposed Khrushchev as closely as possible with Stalin's acts of arbitrary cruelty is a normal manoeuvre in inner party infighting. Thus, we can see Khrushchev's secret speech as an attempt at breaking free from Stalin's ideological and political chains, as much as we can see it as an opportunistic act designed to undermine his rivals and reinforce his own power base. The speech may have been secret, but judging by Khrushchev's uncharacteristically vague way of disseminating it, it seemed only logical that the first secretary expected its contents to leak out. Perhaps he believed that he could control the responses to the speech when it did leak out, but not even he could have imagined the responses from some of the Soviet Union's tightest vassals, or from its ideological allies in Beijing. In the next episode, then, we'll continue our analysis of the responses to Khrushchev's speech, but until then, my lovely history friends and patrons, my name is Zach, this has been the fourth episode of 1956, episode 1.4, thanks for listening and supporting us, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.